but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Let us pray. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Make these words more than words. And give us all the spirit of Jesus. Amen. So many of my prayers begin the same way these days. Dear Jesus, so, ah, uh, well, you see, it was like this. Um, and I shrug, or I cry, or I just sit there in a numb silence. This is prayer in the time of COVID-19. What's your prayer life been like? How have you been? I really want to know. So take a moment. Write something. I'll come back later after the service and read and comment. But I would love to know how you are. Because as beautiful and as compelling as our liturgies have been, I've missed you all terribly. I can see you in my imagination. I know where most of you sit. It's one of the advantages of being up here in the choir. I know where you sit, and you are not sitting there. And I know what it sounds like when you sing, and you're not here to sing. And I miss you. Don't get me wrong, singing with Sarita and Jamie has been a tremendous blessing. It's sustained me in ways that have completely surprised me. But, and, and, let's try and. I'm trying to use the word and more lately. And I miss you. I'm grieving our time apart. And I'm feeling incredible grace in working our, with our liturgical skeleton crew. And this is the word for me in this time. Grief is challenging like this in the way that it holds so much intention, it demands the and. There's no choice. You don't get to pick one side or the other. You have to hold on to joy and hold on to sadness all at the same time. Like Mary, we arrive at the tomb and encounter Jesus simultaneously. During the time of our physical isolation, I find myself running headlong into grief. Every day, there's been something that's catching me off guard. Something someone says, or some surprising meme on Facebook. The news will grab my attention in some way. I will have slipped into some sense of normalcy. And then the next thing I know, there's grief. So much grief. Maybe you can relate. I posted on our church's Facebook page earlier this evening, um, sort of the beginning of my sermon. <laughs> um, we were asked to create a home altar, and in our home we have an icon wall. We keep an altar regularly. and So I took a picture of that and shared it on Facebook 
a couple weeks ago and then I shared it again tonight, but I also shared it then with another picture of everything packed up. All the icons stripped off the walls, off the wall. The cross that I was given when I joined this parish no longer hanging on the wall with the icons. Everything in a box. And the wall was so desolate, so empty. Both images, I'm holding them both constantly. And it's this kind of grief that I bring to our gospel passage tonight. There's so much grief in this story. But Mary stood, outside, stood weeping outside the tomb. She's not happy that Jesus' body's not there. This is not some, oh good, everything's going to be okay kind of moment for her. This is adding insult to horrific injury. They have taken his body. After everything else that we've been through, they took his body. Who does that? I can't take any more. So when she goes to the disciples, she's not bringing them good news. She's bringing them one more horror. So two of them get up and run. Peter and somebody faster than Peter. Poor Peter. <laughs> I love him, but he just can't, he's just not fast. One arrives, doesn't go in, Peter goes in. And you just have to wonder what's going through their minds in this moment. They leave. Lost at what to do is what happened, what I imagine. I just can't imagine that they're just, well, that was something, and they go back to see the other guys. They're lost. They do the only thing they can do, which is go back. Mary takes one more look in, and there are two angels sitting there. And this is when I get angry. I've discovered this. I get angry a lot at John and the way he tells the story of Jesus. And I didn't realize this about me until I started really sitting with John this Lent. And for this sermon, I'm angry at him. Mary's in total shock. And there are two angels sitting there. And they're like, what? Why are you crying? It's obvious. They, First of all, who are you? What have you done with the body? I'm happy to take him back. Please give him back. And there's this gardener, and there's John tells the story of this with this gardener that she mistakes him for the gardener. And, and not to sound flippant, but maybe Jesus looked like the gardener. So in her grief, she's like, oh, right. It's the gardener. It can't possibly be Jesus. Jesus is dead. So the guy who looks a little like Jesus, this must be who it is. It must be the gardener. 
And even Jesus, the way John describes him, even Jesus is like, why are you crying? Not, oh my God, Mary. Let me run to you. Let me weep with you. Let me hold you. None of that. John has this aloof Jesus who says, why are you weeping? And she's distraught. And he calls her name. And that is a wonderful moment when he calls her name and she then recognizes him. And lots of great sermons have been preached about that moment of recognition. And then he says, you know, tell the guys this stuff. And she says, okay, I'll tell them that stuff. And Mary Magdalene is the, is the apostle to the apostles. This is where the church really starts. It starts with the announcement of resurrection in the midst of grief. I get frustrated with John. I'm a little angry with John because... He, unlike the other gospel writers, he has this advantage. I guess it's an advantage. He gets to be almost spiritually arrogant. Don't we all know the ending to the story already? If you don't know, John's gospel is written much later than everyone else's gospel. Decades later. So everyone who's hearing these stories already knows the ending. So it doesn't seem cruel to the people reading the Gospels. Like, oh, right, we all know who the gardener is, and we know who this is, and we know what's going on here. But it seems arrogant. But in this day of the hot take and news stories that last all of six minutes, I have to take a step back with John and think about the fact that he's had decades to think about this stuff. To, dream, to grieve on his own and then to dream to make meaning, to experience a vision of heaven and earth, to give us the prologue, in the beginning was the word, to come to that point after the crucifixion takes decades. So I have to cut John a break though I'm loath to do so. I'm grumpy. Like a lot of us, I'm not sleeping well. Like a lot of us, I'm out of work. Like a lot of us, it's just been hard. I've been thinking a lot about Liz Tishner. Her family lives downstairs from us and we don't see them. Today was my son's birthday, and it's the first time we've seen the Tishners in a while because they actually came to the bottom of the steps to sing happy birthday to Elias. So it's like 13 steps going from the wooden balcony outside to the floor we live. And they came to sing happy birthday, and it's the first time we'd seen them in a while, all together. 
and we talked about how the children had become feral and unmanageable, and it's entirely true. My son refuses to wear clothes now. It's like, why bother? I'm not going to school, right? So he gets up in the morning, he goes to the bathroom and strips, and we're done. Thinking about Liz a lot because she teases me when I preach. I typically don't tell stories. Whereas Liz would tell you nine stories in any one sermon if you, if you could get away with it. She loves a story. So I have two that I want to tell you to flesh out this notion of grief. The first one is this. It's very quick. Keep seeing these memes. Maybe you see them too where humorists and journalists and pundits and really beautiful thinkers are trying to figure out how to make, a, make some sense of what we're going through in the moment. And so there are these comparisons to the Great Depression or to World War II. And those generations, what they did to survive those times. And even Michael, when he stood and preached, brought up this notion of you, you don't know who you're going to be until after the fact, right? We can't look at ourselves now and compare ourselves to that generation. They didn't know what they were doing any more than we do. But my grandfather fought in World War II. And every time these means pop up, and he, he and his brothers both fought in World War II and managed to survive it. Uh, my grandfather was in the 3rd Infantry Division so he was North Africa, Italy, and Germany. He was there for a long time. He was a sergeant in the Howitzer Division. He worked at a prisoner of war camp. And he came back to Richmond, Virginia, and was told just to pick his life up right where he left off. And he's been on my mind because, you know, God love him. He was my grandfather, but Pappy was a hard man to live with. He refused to go outside. His anxiety was the end of him in many ways. And his hands shook. He had this incredible tremor. So every time I see one of these memes, I think about my grandfather's hands. And I think about the price he paid in order to be part of a heroic generation. He never talked about the war not in any kind way, not in any courageous or braggadocious way. We just saw the fruits of it. I think we run risk of trying to process this thing before we're through it, this pandemic. We're trying to make sense of it, trying to make meaning of it before we're through it. So we, we trip over our own efforts. It's absurd to think that nothing has happened in this country since 1947 that has caused distress, death, and violence. Talk to any indigenous person, talk to any African-American person, talk to anybody who survived the AIDS epidemic. 
We've been here many times since World War II. As awful as it is, this can't be a surprise, or if it's surprising us, it's because we're so privileged we didn't experience the others. Not since the Great Depression. It's just not true. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this. Where my grief is coming and jumping up at me. We were, um, was March 17th? St. Patrick's Day was the first day we were shut in. As a guy who lived for, in Chicago for 15 years, I have to tell you that was incredibly insulting. Can't go out and get the corned beef, can't do any of the things. There are no parades. This is awful. <laughs> About that time, it was either that day or the next, we received news that a friend of ours had passed away, an Episcopal priest named Cynthia Hallis. Um, her children are adults, and one of them is married to a good friend of Trish's, my wife's. Um, Cynthia was the ecumenical officer for the Diocese of Chicago when I was the ecumenical officer for the American Baptist Churches of Chicago, and we got to know each other pretty well, and then when her husband, who is a Baptist, well, no, he called him himself a Mennonite-flavored Baptist, was looking for a church, he started coming to my church, so we got to know each other really well, John and Cynthia and me and Trish and it was great. Um, Cynthia and I talk, talked a lot on Facebook. It was either the day that we first started shutting down or the day after Louisa, her daughter, posted on her Facebook wall that her mother had suffered a brain aneurysm and died very suddenly. This whole thing began with grief for me. The compounding griefs of a friend's death and being shut in and the uncertainty about employment and, oh my gosh, as you all have heard, we have to move next week and what are we doing? I'm sitting in this grief. I'm reading John sitting in this grief, and I'm preparing a sermon for the Easter vigil, and I can't escape this grief. So I turn to Cynthia. The last Easter vigil that I participated in in Chicago before we moved here um, was with Cynthia. And she invited me to come participate in the vigil and do a reading with her. A bunch of other stuff too, but specifically to do a reading. She wasn't going to preach. She was going to read St. John Chrysostom's Easter homily. And she wanted me to read it with her. So the Baptist and the Episcopalian stood up in front of these suburban Chicagoans and read a homily from the fourth century. I'm such a Gen generous and hospitable thing to do for me with her. So I've been holding on to that gift because, friends, I've had no sermon for this night. None. 
And as much as I try to push myself through the grief to this experience of resurrection, I just can't get there from here. I keep falling back to my friend Cynthia and her words, uh, her invitation to share the words of John Chrysostom. I keep coming back to my grandfather and his inability to talk about his grief because he was thrown right back into his life as if nothing had happened. I want to give us permission tonight to do what Mary did and hold on to both things the grief and the joy, the confounding reality that resurrection happens in the midst of chaos and may not change it right away, that we might not be able to make meaning of this time for decades yet. We don't need to hurry. To hurry through this might be a trap and a mistake. The last thing. I still feel as a preacher that it's my responsibility to proclaim the resurrection to you. On this night of all nights. Not just to come down here and make everybody sad. So sorry about that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read. It's short. I promise you. Chrysostom's Easter homily. Because I have clung to these words these last four or five weeks. So here you go. Are there any who are devout lovers of God? Let them enjoy this beautiful, bright festival. Are there any who are grateful servants? Let them rejoice and enter into the joy of their Lord. Are there any weary of fasting? Let them now receive their wages. If any have toiled from the first hour, let them receive their due reward. If any have come after the third hour, let them with gratitude join in the feast. And they who have arrived after the sixth hour, let them not doubt, for they too shall sustain no loss. If any delayed until the ninth hour, let them not hesitate, but let them come too. And they who arrived only at the eleventh hour, let them not be afraid by any reason of their delay. For the Lord is gracious and receives even the last as the first. He gives rest to them that come at the eleventh hour as well as to them that toiled from the first. To this one he gives and upon another he bestows. He accepts the works as he greets the endeavor the deed he honors and the intention he commends, let us all enter into the joy of the Lord. First and last alike receive your reward. Rich and poor, rejoice together. Sober and slothful, celebrate the day. You that have kept the fast and you that have not, rejoice today for the table is richly laden. Feast royally on it. The calf is a fatted one. Let no one go away hungry. Partake 
all of the cup of faith. Enjoy all the riches of his goodness. Let no one grieve at his poverty. For the universal kingdom has been revealed. Let no one mourn that they have fallen again and again. For forgiveness has risen from the grave. Let no one fear death, for the death of our Savior has set us free. He has destroyed it by enduring it. He has destroyed hell when he descended into it. He put it into an uproar, even as it tasted his flesh. Isaiah foretold this when he said, You, O hell, have been troubled by encountering him below. Hell was in an uproar because it was done away with. It was in an uproar because it is mocked. It was in an uproar for it is destroyed. It is in an uproar for it is annihilated. It is in an uproar for it is now made captive. Hell took a body and discovered God. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took what it saw and was overcome by what it did not see. O death, where is thy sting? O hell, where is thy victory? Christ is risen, and you, O death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life is liberated. Christ is risen and the tomb is emptied of its dead. For Christ, having risen from the dead, is become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To Christ be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen.